Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the January 25th, 2022 edition of Ask a Leader. Do I mention it, folks? It's 40 weeks. That's 40 Tuesdays before the midterm elections. All right, I did bother mentioning that. Well, today I'm bringing you two water warriors who've been paying attention over the decades to water. Former mayor of Huntington Beach and climate activist Debbie Cook will return with Connor Everts, executive director of the Southern California Watershed Alliance and facilitator the Environmental Water Caucus. And they are thorough discussion today about water, you know, may, could be a primer before more decisions are cast in stone. Water policy and California topics today will include desalination technology and approvals and oversight, water governing entities, and the latest water initiative to hone our critical thinking skills before statewide slates of hand sweep the body politic that are certain to heat up as we approach the midterm elections this fall. We'll be right back after station break. Welcome back to the show. Joining me for the full hour are former mayor of Huntington Beach and climate activist, Debbie Cook and Conard Everts is going to return with her. He's uh, an ex- the executive director of the Southern California Watershed Alliance and facilitator of the Environmental Water Caucus with all the essential aspects of water that are the expected power dynamics and the impacts on ratepayers, communities and state and federal treasuries. We have a good deal to sort out. OK, especially as some very local forums very local. We're talking about the real estate surrounding our station. They're presenting some, uh, well, some dubious claims, and I, I, I'm going to call call them out. Let them, my guests, call them out about what's our way out of managing these intense droughts as climate changes. My first guest, and we've got some long introductions, everybody, because it's been a while since Debbie's been on, and uh, Connor as well, I think, a couple of years ago, three, four years ago, in Connor's case. So my first guest is former mayor of Huntington Beach, Debbie Cook. A timeline's kind of cool to relay her experience. She's graduated from the California State University of Long Beach studying earth science, then completed her law degree at Western State University College of Law, and as a political novice in 1990, she was the main force behind the Huntington Beach City Voter Initiative Measure C, a pro-environment city charter amendment that forbids the sale or lease of park or beach land without citywide vote. That's local, local. We're going to hear that theme coming through in the decentralization trends where we're going to hold up there. Despite opposition by the city council majority, being against this initiative, voters approved it. Score one there for Debbie. Debbie armed with her law degree from the uh, Western Law State as attorney for the Bolsa Chica Land Trust, took part in the efforts to preserve the Bolsa Chica wetlands from development. And we all know what that looks like. It looks great. In 2000, she first was elected to the Huntington Beach City Council, then became mayor in 2001 and was reelected to the council in 2004 
the office of mayor of Huntington Beach is a rotating position within the city council. Her board and commissioner was then. Her board and commission appointments include the Southern California Association of Governments, League of Cities, and while serving for the Orange County Sanitation District, she helped prevent the district from massive dumping of partially treated wastewater into the ocean and the California Desalination Task Force. In 2007, Huntington Beach joined the U.S. Mayor's Agreement on Global Warming. You see the trends here, folks. In 2008, Debbie was a Democratic candidate for California's 46th Congressional District, challenging unsuccessfully then an incumbent, Dana Rohrbacher, when that was a very different district. It extended all the way up to a little sliver of Palos Verdes. After her municipal service, Debbie has served on the Post Carbon Institute, Bill McKibben has a, is a founder of that, so those are big leaguers that she's been associated with, and she's been an advisor to the Association of the Study for Peak Oil and Gas, who envisioned a world of resilient communities and relocalized economies that thrive within ecological bounds. Her water warrior peers, like the one I'll introduce next, prize progressive Debbie Cook, the activist, for her ability to captivate the most reactionary of the so-called water buffaloes. My next guest is Connor Everts, Executive Director of the Southern California Watershed Alliance and facilitator of the Environmental Water Caucus. We're going to give a little service to the water dogs that are going to be happening uh, tomorrow, if people want to plug into that. As a facilitator for the caucus, Connor's co-chaired the Desal Response Group. He's also chair of the Public Officials for Water and Environment Reform, Power, and uh, Get It? That's uh, the, the, the public officials for water environment. That's reform. That's power. As well as the other, as some other organizations. So Connor's elected to the Casitas Municipal Water District and was president of the Ojai Basin Management Groundwater Agency. He convened the California Urban Water Conservation Council, as well as the state task forces on total maximum daily lands, desalination, and the state water resources control board stakeholder process. And most recently, and he's been serving on has in the past, I'm not sure if I've got this up to date, the Department of Public Health Direct Potable Reuse Advisor Group. His cherished undertaking was the elder advisor being helping remove dams on the streams where he caught his own fish back in the day. And with the heft of all these undertakings, Connors convened monthly water dialogues, I've tipped my hat to there, meetings at the Metropolitan Water District. I met him in those caucuses, and then I, there's going to be one tomorrow. Connors' career path reads like an odyssey of sorts. After dabbling in college, he, he wrote some TV scripts, then on to a familia back to the land project, resulting in his book entitled Living the Good Life. He started the Claremont, New Hampshire Energy Project and worked on various energy and water programs, which dealt with drought conditions based on models from record dry periods in California and Oregon. He went on to work at HUD in D.C., replicating his local water, local, there you go again, folks, and energy programs on a broader scale. He eventually returned to California working for engineering firms and municipalities as he settled in, settled in Ojai, dabbled in law school, tacked on with some uh, droughts in California. He's on the college lecture circuit. And so he'll take us along to um, where we're going to talk about some various decentralizing and some sustainable themes throughout here that you heard me talk through what their experience is. Debbie comes to us today from, I believe it's Huntington Beach, and Connor Everts from the other deluxe coastal community of Santa Monica. Okay, here's the end of the introduction. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, Debbie Cook and 
Connor Everts. Well, thank you, Claudia. I'm not sure how you dug up all that dirt on me, but kind of frightening. No, no dirt at all. It's stellar. Okay. And Connor, are you there? Good, good morning, Claudia. Thank you for that. Uh, reading of my resume, it makes me realize how long we've all been working on these issues. But let's get to talking about where we're going now as well. That's where we are. We're first, I want to start so I can map it out for, for guests, for listeners. I want to start up. We're going to be local with the Huntington Beach and the proposed Poseidon desalination plant. And I want to work in the theme about how how sustainable, it's really, it's a big departure from the conventional takes. We've got resources to bring in with their experience about how, how local decentralized plans are the sustainable ones. They're not building this huge brick and mortar infrastructure, but we've got, we've got all that to work with. So we'll start local and we'll keep moving out until we can try to figure out a way to make this happen. It's, it's a tall, tall order because as we know, the ag business is that the moguls really have so many resources and they're so dug in and they have in the Central Valley, the minority leader in Congress who is, uh, he's trying so hard to be the, the majority leader in the, after the fall elections, uh, Kevin McCarthy. So there's a lot built in there. So let's start with the Poseidon desalination plant, which both of you have taught me over the years. It's at least a 30-year-old technology, but they just keep, with their deep, deep pockets, keep pushing that application. They got past the Water Control Resources Board last year with the appointments that were shuffled around by Governor Newsom. It's sort of shocking to some people that Governor Newsom could have this kind of retro take on water resource management. So let's start with where we are now as the Poseidon Project now is on the calendar before I think the final approval would be with the California Coastal Commission in the week of March 8th. So who wants to start with where the Poseidon desalination plant is today? I'll let Connor do that. Okay, I'll do a quick update. So March 10th is actually the date of the Coastal Commission. It was going to be in person in Newport Beach, where it was six years ago, and they pulled their application because it looked like they are going to lose. So here we go again. It will be remote, so people can participate online. There have been ongoing workshops gearing up to this point. Um, but there's also a chance that Poseidon pulls back their application, and then it would be heard probably in June. And the Coastal Commission goes back and forth with their meetings from north to south, and they'd like to have this one locally. But it, you know, as COVID continues, um, we're all going to be remote. It's been a long process. I actually met uh, then-Mayor Debbie Cook at a meeting, I think around 2001, when this process began. Biden's been started in Huntington Beach, got a lot of resistance, and went down to San Diego, where they had less resistance in the midst of fires and a drought. In 2006, 2007, they went to the Coastal Commission, overruled the staff recommendation against the permit, and built Carlsbad at an incredibly high cost. And we don't want to repeat those mistakes. They were grandfathered in on some permitting on the intake and the uh, discharge from a power plant, which now, according to what's called the Ocean Plan Amendment, isn't allowed. So there's, you know, a, a lot of discussion about technology. But what we've really learned is it's not the technology stupid about desal. We don't want industrialized plants all along the coast, privately held and incredibly um, expensive to maintain 
and not as reliable with red tide and other climate change factors shutting them down for periods of time. Uh, the cost of that water, if just used on local conservation programs, will provide all the water we need. And in reality, we aren't short of water. We just mismanage what we have. So and there's a reason why something doesn't get built over all these years, not ready for prime time. And uh, I think that's why people aren't against the technology per se, but they're against the process that doesn't prioritize first things first. And we saw when the governor shifted the composition of the Water uh, Control Resources Board in the Santa Ana Regional D District there. So if the California Coastal Mission docket, the agenda is, is pushing the Poseidon application from the March to the June meeting, are there any kinds of antenna extended in the direction of the governor's office that he might somehow change some appointments to make sure this goes? Because he got the memo from Governor Brown. This is what you've all taught me. Governor Brown said, you've got to get the, this project through. So um, is, is there a problem between March and June? And each big structural leadership change is happening? Well, there are chances. I mean, these positions sit at the pleasure of the governor. The Coastal Commission's more complex because it's also the this the legislature the Senate and the assembly who gets to make appointments. But the regional board, which was really egregious, um, kind of undid the sitting board members who had been on this process for years, honestly, and knew a lot about it and put in some amateurs for the final vote. And it was very disappointing um, that it became so political rather than just the facts uh, that were laid out quite clearly. So I think we are going to go March 10th. We're planning as, we're, as we should. We'd like people to participate. There's websites like caldesalfacts.org that lists a lot of the local information. Um, there's a lot of organizations working around this because of their concerns of the marine impacts and the environmental justice costs and, and others. We're well prepared. But, you know, these things can de be delayed and go on forever um, without a resolution I think we're coming to a time when there's real change. I'd like to throw in a couple others briefly that just happened. The West Basin Municipal Water District, which is a regional wholesaler going from Malibu south, doesn't include the city of Santa Monica or the city of Los Angeles, but then all the South Bay cities, Palos Verdes, Inland, Culver City, Gardena, Lawndale, Inglewood, and others, uh, parts of Torrance. And they, after also 20 years of trying to do an ocean desalination plant a couple months ago, voted to terminate any further funding after spending over $70 million building a little pilot that didn't work well, trying to prove through lots of money and time and effort that, that that's what they could do. They decided to focus on their uh, good uh, recycled water plant, one of the first, like Orange County has, a very successful plant, focus on that and groundwater and their conservation programs. And so at this point, they've terminated further funding. And the other one that Debbie and I worked on was called Cadiz, a desert water mining project that was also a long time in the making back into the 90s. I got caught up in the energy crisis and the price of energy to pump and move the water to southern Orange County for more development. Now, with both statewide legislation and the Biden administration weighing in, it looks like that boondoggle, or we call them zombie supply projects that won't go away, is going to go away, and we can focus on local water programs as we should. 
Well, that's a mouthful, and those are sort of showing folks they're not immediate to us, but they're they're trending and what kind of leadership and policy affects all of us. So I want to, it's it's sort of a, a line, through line from the local project to state and federal funding, though, that might be perniciously sort of an enabling kind of uh, matter here. The California Water Supply Infrastructure Trust Account Initiative is an initiative that is qualified, does work collecting signatures as we speak, and it's for a statewide proposition this fall. So I'd like for Debbie and Connor to talk about what that Infrastructure Trust Account Initiative, or we'll call it the California Water Supply Initiative. That's my shorthand I'll use from here on. I've covered it a little bit with interested stakeholders, but I want for the two of you to say whether how this affects, this enables and uh, sort of keeps the Poseidon project alive. And we ought to know about that and keep giving us assignments as you're talking and updating us. Well, you know, Connor knows, he follows this more closely than I do, but it is a backhanded way for Poseidon to get around some of the environmental laws. And the problem is that water is one of the most complicated issues. I think it's the most fascinating issue that we face, but it's so complicated people do not understand and they think that more water is what we need and it doesn't really matter where it comes from, how it's made, we just want more water. So, uh, you know, we think there are far better solutions, obviously. But water has become so, uh, it's just so full of political shenanigans, influence peddling, dirty tricks, sneaky lawyers, corruption. There's just so much intrigue involved in it. But the public will, could very likely be duped if they support this, um, this initiative, which will basically allow water, private water companies, really, this is really to support private water companies to get around environmental rules. But I know that Connor has been following it much more closely than I have. And well, we're going to follow that all the way till the general in the fall. But yes, Connor. Yeah, I just, I just say quickly, the moniker they were using was more water now. It's to take um, money out of the general fund, which would otherwise go to health, safety, and education and other programs, and directly fund each year to the point where they get 5 million acre feet. That's the large supply of amount we talk about, a football field, a, a foot deep of water, or roughly a third of a million gallons per acre foot. So they want to uh, somehow create this water by the old methods of the last century, which are dams, conveyance, or desal, uh, they want to build a giant tunnel under the delta, or desalination plants. And the proponents are from Orange County um, on the board, the president of the board, Steve Sheldon of the Orange County Water District, which I said does historically done a very good job on recycled water until they got a little too focused on this. And they still lack, I have to say, that uh, even with the Coastal Commission decision, still has to go back for a final term sheet or contract to the Orange County Water District. They've hedged on that. But what this would do specifically to desal is not only raise money out of the general fund, but it would also rescind a decision that could be made by the Coastal Commission in March or June. And if this passes 2022, then in November it would retroactively undo that and lead a lot of the decisions to the Secretary of Resources of the State of California as a appointed political position. That's not how the process works. That's not why we have both regional boards and state boards, even though they're not perfect. Um, they give the public a participation in a legal way to get involved in these issues. 
and it's, a, it's the process that is supposed to happen by various California laws and constitution. It would undo that, and it's not just for desalination, although it has three of the five proponents who signed the ballot initiative. Uh, the other two are from a monster dairy um, in the Central Valley Ag Interest. So they want to continue things you know, the way we've always done them, and we're looking at doing the new way of doing things, which, like you said, is decentralized and local and reduces the amount of energy instead of increases it and is appropriate, immediate response for climate change. Allow me, allow me, as taking host privilege here, just to sort of synthesize, I think, the pernicious aspect of that initiative. It's a ratcheting down of oversight, environmental oversight. It ratchets down the public finance, the uh, available funds for other things. So it's, it's obligating f- public funds, and it ratchets down the technology that we should be expanding and moving into the future. It's ratcheting down into the retro. So it's, it's a ratchet effect for all things that would inform and enlighten public policy. It affects everybody. So my guest reintroduced them for those of you who just joined us. Debbie Cook is former mayor of Huntington Beach and Connor Everts, executive director, Southern California Watershed Alliance, facilitator of the Environmental Water Caucus. So we've talked about some of those local projects, and I wanted to um, bring up, there's a wonderful coverage that Stephanie Pinsettle is with the UCLA Institute of the Environment and Sustainability and founding director of the California Center for Sustainable Communities at UCLA. So this is carrying further our decentralized theme here is instead of looking at these huge projects, thinking of the the water distribution and these large powerful agencies, she's talking about a sustainable agricultural model that's decentralizing us. But it, it sounds great. It's worked in other on other continents. It's quaint to reverse how the water moguls are operating over the last century. How can we get her decentralized sort of outlook projection? How can we get that going? What's our role in helping get to that point of this decentralizing sustainable ag practices? Well, <laughs> you know, I, I think we... We really have to take a step back and uh, understand that, you know, agricultural water is, you know, 80% of public use and 20% is the, you know, the urban use, but also understand that uh, you have to understand how much you need or, or what is the need here, because that's something we never touch on. We always just, you know, we hear drought, we always think we've got to jump on, we need more water, more water, but the fact is that the waste of water is... Uh, in my opinion, needs to take a, a, a higher, it needs to come in first because we waste so much water. And so even if you decentralize or, you know, whatever, I think you still have those same problems that we have already, which is so much of our water policy is set in the dark. No matter what the, the water agency is, they're not watched, you know, and it's really difficult. So you can say decentralized things, but putting it you know, taking it out of that does not mean that you're going to have more water or you're going to use it more sustainably, in my opinion. But Debbie, you know, hold Connor, that thought. Debbie, hold that thought, though. When you say it's set in the dark, and it's even more, um, I want to say, pernicious than that, is when Connor has these water dialogues through the Metropolitan Water District, there will be agency representatives 
and they just have this kind of delivery, and you two can react to this too. Their delivery is so sort of unflappable, and they're and so jargony, and so I mean, it's a public water dialogue. But you have there's no palpable sense of alarm in how how the trends really are. They really understate the situation. So um, it's not just in the dark that policy is muddled, but it's also in these kind of uh, dog and pony shows that agencies present. Yeah, it really is all show. The agencies themselves uh, meet, uh, they, the public, there's no public in these meetings, first of all. There's no press there, and there's no public there. The times that I would go, people would look at me like, who is she? And uh, you're not supposed to be here. And really, sometimes you actually get questioned, well, what are you, in fact, some of the city, these water agency employees will come up and say, well, what are you doing here? It's like, well, isn't this a public meeting? So they're not used to having any but any kind of scrutiny, which is really where a lot of this needs to start. People elect these officials, and that's who the staff at Connor's meetings, those are staff sent from these boards, and these boards control what their staff can say. And so you can have all the water dialogues you want, but, you know, it's just not trickling down to these water agencies, and the people who elect these people do not know who they're electing. So, um, you know, we, we have lots of fundamental problems here that need fixing. First showing up, that's, that's the first assignment, is show up. I, I, and I had my experience when this initiative was going out, and I got a, a, a press release from the board, uh, I, I guess. I'm on lots of lists I keep finding myself on. And so I went to the Mesa, that's Costa Mesa, the Mesa Water Board meeting where they just— voted 5-0, by the way, to endorse this initiative. One of the, uh, Mr. Shane, is that the drive the right guy, Connor? That is uh, one of the authors. Dwayne. Sean Dwayne. Dwayne. Thank you. And so I was the only, I I didn't uh, speak, there wasn't, um, I didn't have any comments prepared, but I certainly observed how they all talked about the script they're going to use and how they've got everything covered. And, but there was no, nobody else there were, I don't think any constituents there were, there were members of staff and their communications person, and there was I for for that five zero endorsement vote, which is a pretty big step to take. They're going to be this mantle of water board authority and weighing in on a very consequential statewide initiative. But Connor, you were going to say something to this too. No, I I have to say the water dialogue attempt and it's a joint effort with a nonprofit and community group. But we don't the sway or the numbers that the industry has. I think it's changed a little bit with Zoom meetings, virtual meetings, and that they're not being held. The Metropolitan Water District or lastly, at uh, L.A. County Administrative Building. So it does allow more people to participate, but it is, as Debbie said, essentially a closed world, predominantly male. We call them water buffaloes, the people that sit on these water boards without term limits. And to the big metropolitan wholesaler, they are appointed, not elected, and they control the process, they control the narrative, and we try to interject. I think people are more aware of water than they have been in the past. I think people have proved that we've decoupled conservation and the the water demand from population, and um, people save water, not agencies, and and we've continued to do that. People, you know, figure out how to legally disconnect their gray water and reuse gray water, capture rainwater, uh, like Debbie does with a large-scale cistern she got from Australia, change out their landscape, 
um, which Debbie did on a large scale also as an example, but many people are doing these things one way or another. Um, and it's partly but, but, because the water has gotten so expensive and affordability is a real issue for everybody as well. And it, it di- didn't used to be uh, to this level of concern. So we try to make the dialogue uh, so-called fair and balanced, but it, it never is. Um, our discussion tomorrow will include a community representative talking while we need to fund these things, we need to have priorities, and we still have to remember that there's almost a million people without access to safe, clean, and affordable drinking water, what we call the human right to water in the state of California, in almost third-world conditions, even in urban areas. One million. I'm hearing that. Good God. Debbie, you but, were going to Claudia, say... I want to point out one more thing about the meeting you attended. Yep. That is not the meeting where decisions were made. <laughs> That's part of the problem is these water agencies have basically... They've created all these subcommittees that all of the members of that board will serve on. And that's where they have those discussions. And the public is certainly not at those meetings. They're held during the middle of the day. And at the evening meeting that you attended, that's just a rubber stamp meeting. It started at about 4 p.m. So it's sort of like, yes. but, but you're right. I mean, people couldn't even make it up. I, was, I had the autonomy. I could do that. But it was... But it's it's palpable the power in these rooms, and it's palpable that it's an insulated sort of exercise of power. And, and there's a reason we call it the hydrological brotherhood. And actually, today there's a perfect example of what Debbie's talking about. You know, and I actually remember going to Modoc, once the municipal water district of Orange County that imports water, versus the Orange County Water District, which deals with groundwater and recharge. But the meeting was actually behind closed doors within the um, office itself, and it was really hard to get access, let alone know where it is. It wasn't in a public board room at all. We've had that experience trying to find other committee meetings where the real policy is decided, and if there is any discussion, that's where it happens. So today at the Metropolitan Water District, they're laying out their new committee chairs and the people their staff decided by the chairman of the board of the 38 members of the Metropolitan Water District representing many other water agencies across Southern California. And it is, I hate to say this, but just the same old white water buffaloes that have sat there forever. The chair is African-American, but she's not making use of the greater number of women, of the greater number of people of color that are now on the board, of new people with new ideas. Don't get the opportunity to run these committees. So when I'm done with this, at noon, I'm going to call in and advocate. But as Debbie said, the decision's already been made. And uh, there's little shame or irony with these decision makers to understand the impacts they are having and the amount of power they have over people and the future of the state and um, what are going to be ever more expensive projects versus projects that save ratepayers' money, the basic conservation programs. Are you able to head there, Debbie? Are you going to have... Connor be your correspondent there. Yeah, I'll let Connor handle it. Okay. No, so, no, but there needs to be bodies saying there's these sets of eyeballs and sets of ears listening, participating, observing. Oh, for sure. For sure. So, Connor, you can give us the links to how the public can sign on to that. Anybody who's listening live, they're not going to hear that on the podcast. It will be too late, but they can do it for future reference, as well as how to sign up for the water dialogues with the Metropolitan Water District. First one in the Metropolitan Water District for their board meeting at noon, and the time is inconclusive because it's after when they get done with their committee meetings. They actually have two days. They have 13 standing committees 
And so when those get done, however long those take, they're often in other rooms beforehand, then the meeting's supposed to start, not at high noon, but whenever the others are done. So you can be on the phone like you're behind a big black curtain waiting for half an hour or more until those other meetings are done. You can listen online, MWD of Southern California, uh, type it in and go into their meetings and agendas. Uh, they're improving their website. They have a new general manager who comes from the city of Los Angeles, Department of Sanitation, did a program called One Water. It's a big departure from their past to have somebody who has progressive local water ideas. There's been a lot of resistance. And the example is the people being appointed to these committees. And then the other one is the uh, Southern California Water Dialogue, which is spelled out.org to actually sign up for the meetings. Maybe you can read it off. Announcement I sent you. You have to register for a Zoom meeting. With med staff. To, to attend. Yeah. And I and guess you can go right up to the, I'm not sure if you could do it up until the morning. So, folks, you can still you, participate you can, in that. Do it, you can do it while the meeting's gone on. And we, we no longer have a limit of, a, of 100 people only. Thank goodness. So we can go up to 500 people. We're often well over 100, but far the, more than the 40 or 50 we might get in person. And it's and archived. It's interesting because yes. it's all about funding of, they say, is up to a trillion dollars. And how, how we spend that money and what we spend it on decides our future in California. That's the $1 trillion Federal Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. And I, I don't know if you either of you have something to say to, before the water dialogues. It's the Ask a Leader trialogue here. Is If there's a feature of that, I mean, I worry that the water buffaloes are the ones present in the back and forth of putting that Infrastructure Investment Jobs Act down into a a bill that was voted on last fall. Does that have a way of reinforcing sort of the status quo, or is, is there anything progressive about that? Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead, Debbie. No, no, I, 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 I don't know. Yeah, so the board members of these various public agencies, and there's also about 20% of all the water agencies in the state of California are private. They are... Um, sent to Washington, D.C. to lobby. They also are part of an association of California water agencies that is essentially the propaganda branch of the water agencies, and they do training and have essentially junkets. When they were in person in South Lake Tahoe, Disneyland, uh, Monterey, and others uh, twice a year to essentially pull together the policy positions state and federally. So, of course, they have a big hand in, in this policy making, although it doesn't always or usually doesn't represent their ratepayer constituents. But, and then they go and they feed at the trough and, and look to bring in money, and we have literally thousands of independent jurisdictions and water agencies across the state. Oh, so it goodness. is very complex, but as much as people can get involved, you know, and that they have the time and when they have the meeting, and to vote for new people to get on these boards, uh, we can start to see some change because the change with climate has already happened. The Colorado River has been in drought 21 out of 23 years. All you have to do is go see um, Lake Mead behind Hoover Dam, and it's down to a trickle. Um, but then we also get these extremes, like we had early rains in December in California. You know, we had 210% of normal and uh, up to 10 feet of snow in the Sierra. 
So we're getting these extremes in climate change, and now we're dry in January. So we have to make use of what we have when we have it and continue to reduce our demand so we look at other places in the world that use far less water, far more efficiently than we do. I want to also look yes, Debbie, sorry. I was going to say also look at where the water is actually going because nearly half of Colorado's river water is going to irrigate crops that feed cattle like alfalfa and corn silage and you know things like that. So taking a look at our our federal subsidies that make that happen that a large driver of some of the crops that are grown here and where that water is going. So it's a ratcheting down folks. There that trend. But I want to I'm going to bring up David Feldman, the director of the Water UCI, will convene another talk in this series. And the title of the talk, I'm going to set this all up for you two to respond to here. The title of the talk is Privatization of Water, Will It Bring Greater Social Equity? And so the contributors are Wade Crowfoot, who's the Secretary of California Natural Resources Agency that was appointed by Governor Newsom, Cindy Tuck, Association of California Water Agencies. Michael Hanneman is a professor of economics. He's a, He was at Berkeley, and he's at ASU for some reason. Jennifer Capitolo is the California Water Association, and Laurel Firestone, California State Water Resources Council Board. So, so I want you to help us think critically about those people that are talking about social equity and the the whole idea of managing water privately like that. So I'm saying this because people pay attention to what elite academic institutions like the UC system puts out there. But I want you two to respond to those people that are invited to give that talk at UCI tomorrow. Well, I I had to read that title twice when I saw it because I just thought it had to be a misprint. I was incensed. It's just the opposite. Privatizing water makes water more expensive. I have a friend that lives up in Orange, and they used to get their water from a private purveyor, Golden State. They were able to get out of the grips of Golden State and get uh, taken over by Irvine Ranch Water District, a public agency. And I think, I think she told me her water prices dropped almost in half. Wow. I mean, it was a significant drop in the cost of water. Uh, I've never seen an example where privatizing water makes it less expensive. Ever. So I don't know why, why these, I don't know what's wrong with these, well, except you know where these people come from. They're coming, they're representing private water agencies. So that's yeah. what that's about. <laughs> I, I agree. Yeah, I mean, the simple answer to that without having a panel would be no. Um, and we have many examples, and we have uh, these groups called Flow. Um, there's one in Ojai, there's one in uh, Felton trying to get out of Calam in Ojai. They removed themselves from uh, Golden State, again, a statewide uh, private company that was based in Los Angeles and now in San Dimas. They used to be called Southern California Water Company, but they've expanded. People are given the opportunity to go for a public agency. Part of the problem, though, there's this very fine line between public and private, and they seem to cross over those lines quite a bit. So you have an Aqua, the Association of California Water Agencies, has two representatives on that panel, supposed to represent uh, originally irrigators, but they put together agriculture and urban water agencies. But here they are, I would, I would hope, advocating for the public, but I doubt that they will. Kind of like in Kern County, the way oil and water uh, seem to mix together, 
uh, despite the conflicts uh, between the two and big ag. The one person there I think is very interesting is Laurel Firestone, a young attorney who uh, co-founded Community Water Center in the Central Valley and then was appointed, um, a good appointment by Newsom, to the statewide Water Resource Control Board, which is the oversight of the nine regional boards in the state. And so she represents people who don't have access to clean drinking water and builds up the capacity of little tiny towns along the 99 and with local groups who see clean snowmelt water flow right by them and onto the agricultural fields of uh, mostly big industrial agriculture, and they are reliant only on polluted groundwater, often by over-fertilizing and applying pesticides, fungicides, herbicides, and that filters down, and there's high nitrate levels in their water, too. It may look clear, but it's very polluted. The Laurel Firestone uh, represents them, and uh, she'll be the other voice. However, you know, even in this More Water Now initiative we talked about, there'll be a small amount for clean drinking water. There'll be a small amount for recycled water, so they can kind of play to those. They check a box uh, that way, but it's not substantive enough. No, it's, it's a tiny amount of, of where the priority of the funding really should be. So, um, yeah, that's an interesting talk. Um, ours is an interesting talk, but I think Debbie's really right. Neither of those are the discussions that we really need to be having in the times we're in where we have to adapt and change and, and in a way, go back to what, you know, what people do in other places in the world and capture local water and don't dump it back in the ocean and uh, fully clean what is our sewage in Orange County has been very direct in doing a program that treats it so it's cleaner than what comes out of your tap and then puts it back into the ground and treats it again after a long process. But those are all the things we need to do first. We need to decentralize industrial water use so where you're not dumping it. Um, back into creeks, rivers, in the ocean, and, and reusing it on site. Um, and our levels of per capita water usage, even though we measure them now in residential to make it look less, still way above uh, places like Israel, Spain, and Australia that got their per capita down before they even looked at desal. And even with that, Australia stuck for plants they don't use. So the two of you, I would like for you, to, I'm, I'm going to keep uh, c- trying to cover as much as we can with the time we have remaining, is right. how does stormwater recapture decentralizing that management look like? What? How, how does it look? How is it codified? Is it state down? Is it each local government that's trying to be a model for other local governments? How do we decentralize and capture stormwater so we don't lose that? Because you're talking about that water's here. It's just not being managed at all well. Deb, you want to talk about what Huntington Beach has done first? Well, I just, I want to say that, you know, we're a big state, and every region has different issues and different solutions. And so on some level, it has to be at the local level. But at the same time, we have to disincentivize the selling, the... See, the water agencies, most people don't understand this. They are in the business of selling water. So they're always going to look to sell more water. They do not like it when they're told to conserve because that hits their budgets directly. I mean, that's a big ding to their budget when they're told to get their their buyers to, to not buy so much. You know, be like a, somebody selling clothing saying, don't buy my clothes. 
Well, it's like energy, uh, right? The energy uh, firms that, uh, if there's distributed yes. energy, then we're, they're going to be out of the the ratepayer stream of revenue. So, yes, and so that has to be dealt with first. Okay, I think the, the model um, so that these guys are actually wanting to conserve water. You know, this whole last year when we were t- constantly seeing on the news, oh, we have a drought, we need to l- use less water, and the governor's saying use less water, blah blah blah. Not once did our water agency send out anything suggesting that we conserve. (laughs) And there is so much we can do at the local level that is totally painless. I mean, there's a wonderful water controller that I installed over the summer that turns it off automatically based on your weather stations. It's kind of like what Irvine Ranch is doing down in Irvine. Uh, You know, little things like that really add up. Because during the drought, uh, was that 2018, Connor? I can't remember the last one when Brown said, you know, you have to reduce by 25%, which some people did a lot and some people did nothing at all. We still saved in Orange County, I think, over two Poseidon plants. So Whoa. we saved more water than two Poseidon plants in that six-month period, or it might have been over the whole year. But anyway, it was just it's amazing how much you can do to reduce your water when it's required. But when you talk about per capita... We had discrepancies at the beginning of that period. We had discrepancies like where one city's population is using 75 gallons per capita, and then Villa Park was over 500 gallons per capita. So how do you make that fair? Because when you add on an expensive plant like Poseidon, where the water is twice what any other, or three or four times more than any other water source, you're you're actually asking the people who can least afford it to pay more because they're using less water per capita, they're going to pay a higher price than somebody who wastes water. So um, if I'm that just, makes sense. Yes, and I, I want to just remind people that you're listening to Debbie Cook, former mayor of Huntington Beach, and Connor Everts, executive director of the Southern California Watershed Alliance and running the Southern California Water Dialogues. And so David Feldman is also on another platform at UCI, talks about we've got to keep desal in the mix of solutions. But, you know, if this is such an expensive and environmentally costly kind of a project, it looks like you two have given me a question I need to run by, you know, the source for that data point that two Poseidons were conserved through the conservation efforts, two Poseidons were saved in the a six month of conservation efforts. So I, I want to have you both in closing talk about the storm water we got from these rain events in the last month and a half that there has been a shift of the allocation based on that weather picture we recently had. What are you wanting to see the governor set out for allocations and for conservation goals? How much more invigorated does he need to be so that we're starting on the micro level, our savings? You know, I I would say what the governor has not done is, uh, and what the former Governor Brown did, was established mandatory conservation. It was a range, uh, so those that were wasting the most were supposed to save the most, I think, up to 36%, and others down to 8% if they were already saving. Just having it mandatory means we save about 30% more. We have not met those goals with voluntary, what we always have. Some agencies and cities especially continue to have programs and enforce them but because we haven't been strong enough on it. And then by the time he came out with a message of some enforcement, it was literally pouring with rain and dumping snowpacks for future water supplies. So that was a mixed message. Um, I think the governor has to take a stronger stand 
and set priorities. He has a water port resilient portfolio. There's 144 items in it, but it's like looking at a menu and saying, I want to order everything on it. There is not any sense of priority. And with those priorities, you have choices that use far less energy, like desal uses the most of any supply source, even more than pumping over the Tehachapi Mountains, which is the single largest use of energy in the state of California of electrical energy. Even than that, Whereas if we actually save water and offset what would seem, we have an, a gain in energy, theoretically. Um, if we actually balance those things into what's called a loading order that they do on the electrical side, okay. uh, we would okay. have choices that don't contribute to these extremes of climate change. And, you know, all or nothing is the way we're getting our water. Uh, we have local stormwater programs. The county of L.A. voted uh, Measure W. Orange County should do the same thing. So there's funding for the program. There are pollution issues around it, so it's a real benefit, especially down to the beaches and to our groundwater. You know, there's a whole bunch of toolkit things we can talk about, but I think Debbie's right in saying these basic policy decisions have to be changed and prioritized as we move future into a baseline and a future that we really have never experienced before, uh, with the driest and the wettest happening on a continuous basis in a relatively short period. Yes, Debbie. I, I, I'd like to say something to Governor Newsom. Okay, here that, you go. You know, he said that we can't get serious about climate change unless we get serious about tailpipe emissions. Well, I think he needs to understand that water has a tailpipe emission as well. You're not going to get serious about climate change unless you wrap your head around the tailpipe emissions of water. So, you know, I personally think he's being driven by um, unions that want want. They, you know, they think these jobs are their jobs and nothing else can replace that. I, I wish they understood that all these other projects could be union jobs as well. Yes. It doesn't have to be ocean desalination. Just like Orange County Water District built that big recycling plant, those are all union jobs. And you could build those up and down the state of California at half the price of ocean desalination. And they're public projects, not private projects. All right, there's a memo to uh, the organizers in Orange County that, you know, an ally alliance with labor to bring the, the tailpipe emissions down for, the, for the, the governor's agenda. So and I guess you could say that a desal plant would be like a dual exhaust system, <laughs> right? Not just, yeah. not just one pipe, but two. Sure. Well, I, I, there, yes? I, I would like to say what Debbie used to say is that a desal plant is like buying an old Hummer with today's gas prices. All right. There it is. Hyphenated on uh, cross-stitch in gas baths and flying up and down the beaches on uh, federal holidays and weekends. Okay? We'll do that. So I want to thank both of you for, for being on the show. Let's see here. We're going to go out with a little Tehachapi here. Uh-huh. Thank you, Claudia. Hold. Thank you, Claudia. Hold. Stay with me, folks. So my guests were Debbie Cook, former mayor of Huntington Beach, and Connor Everts, executive director of the Southern California Watershed Alliance, facilitator of the Environmental Water Caucus. Thank you both today for your time. This has been really, really helpful. You're welcome. Thank you. Bye. Well, that's my wrap. For next week's show, UCI School of Education professor Greg Duncan will cover his latest findings released from a collaborative study showing that monetary support for low-income families 
impacts the brain development of newborns. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening, everyone. And now we're